And as you turn there, please give your attention now once again to the reading of God's holy word. I will read down to verse 27, but verse 23 will be our focus for the preaching. These are God's words once again. Give them your attention. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste death, taste of death, till they see the kingdom of God. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray for the preaching. O holy God of heaven, as we come to the preaching of the word, help us, O God, follow Christ by it. We pray for the preacher that he would first be led by the Spirit to Christ in the preaching of the word that he would deny himself, his own opinions, he would carry his cross for the sake of Christ. And we pray that as well for the congregation. Would you send your spirit into the heart of both minister and member, that we would all now seek Christ and we would seek to die to self, that we would find ourselves with John the Baptist saying that he, that is Jesus, must increase and we must decrease. And would you help us then in the preaching of the word, hear these as the very words of God preached to us. Give help, Father, to us now. We need the help of the Spirit. And we pray for those who are here who are unconverted, that this day would be the day of salvation to them, that the seeds of the gospel would fall into fertile ground. May your Spirit do that work. And for the backslider who has not denied themselves, but has followed themselves rather than Christ. May this be the day of turning as it was for the prodigal. So Father, would you bless the preaching of the word? We ask now that you would open thou our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the prevailing thought in my mind as I considered this text this week was this is one of the most vital for the Christian to know and to keep close to their heart. After the Spirit brings us into Christ's kingdom through a text like this, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Straight away, when the new birth comes to us, Christ demands that we will with full faith take up this text in verse 23. If any man will come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You know, this is, as I was thinking of this and I kept editing and editing this sermon, this is the kind of text that a Puritan would probably preach a 12-part series on because it is so vital for the life of the disciple. It defines, in fact, the very life and tenor of the Christian disciple, the one who will follow Jesus into eternity. It reminds you as well, people of God, that before there is a crown, there is a cross for the people of God to bear. 
A, a, a disciple's life is defined by cross-bearing and self-denial. This is a life contrary to the world's doctrine. And what is the world's doctrine? Really, you can summarize it this way. Today, in this time and place, do what makes you feel happy. A disciple, though, says the contrary. The disciple says, I will do what delights my Lord. That's where my heart is, not in what makes me happy. And of course, just like Moses found out, that to do what delights the Lord is actually what leads to everlasting life and happiness. And the disciple says, no matter the cost, this is what Jesus tells us, a disciple doesn't come up with this on his own. No matter the cost, even if it comes to the end of my life, I will follow Jesus and deny myself. And the disciple says, what does it matter anyhow? I will be with Christ for eternity, even if it comes to that. Well, it's some of those preliminary thoughts before you. Our theme is quite simple today, which is the life of a disciple. The life of a disciple. And that theme will follow three imperatives as headings that arise from our text. The first is the imperative to follow Christ. The second is to die daily, and the third is to deny self. And you might notice, boys and girls, I'm doing this in reverse order, and that's on purpose because it's a chain where we must look at the end before we look at the beginning. So first, follow Christ. First, we must note who our Lord addresses in the text. Verse 23 begins, If any man will come after me. Who's being addressed? Is this verse only for the apostles who were gathered there around Jesus at the time? Is this verse only for ministers, elders, and deacons? Is it only for men? Is it only for parents, boys and girls? No. He addresses any man, any man that comes to him, any man, woman, or child who says that they have come to the Savior, have put their faith in Jesus Christ, He is addressing you all. You know, the flow of this chapter, I know it's been a couple of weeks since we're in Luke 9, is quite deliberate, so it's so well crafted. You notice Luke, a lot of times by the Holy Ghost, he crafts these chapters so meticulously. What did we learn last time, right? First, it established an orthodox confession of faith. How one enters the kingdom of God. Back in verse 20, right, when Jesus asked, Whom say ye that I am? The response that is expected is uh, what? The Christ of God, right? That is a confession of the person of Christ, right? Who our Savior is. Jesus then proclaimed what? His suffering, his death, and his resurrection in verse 22. And he taught us to believe on the person and the work of Christ, right? This is the gospel that we confess, that we are saved solely and entirely by the person and work of Jesus Christ. As a reminder then, to enter the kingdom of God, to have life everlasting, we must believe on him and his work. Romans 10 verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, what? Thou shalt be saved. Very good. This is the good news. Faith in Jesus saves you. Saved, and, and let's revel with on this for a moment, right? Saved from all your sins whatever they are, utterly glorious that the chief of all sinners with faith in the Lord can have all their sins cleansed and washed away. Who does he call to come to him? Remember Matthew 11, verse 28. Come unto me, 
right? All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a free and full commandment, isn't it? A gospel offered to all, even the chief of the sinner. All of you who have heard his voice now, that invitation is there. Even you, sinner, no matter how heinous your sins are, no matter how great your burden of guilt and shame might be, he says, come unto me and I will give you rest, all of you. All of you that labor. But then, and we, 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 we revel in that, right? We glory in that, and we've taken time to do that, and we could take much more time to do that. But just as expansive, right, as that call is, come unto me, all of you, so is the call to discipleship. In other words, there isn't a category of disciple that is, is called to eternal life who isn't also called to a life of carrying their cross and denying themselves. As you have come to him in the gospel call, you are a disciple of Christ. And in verse 23, listen again. If any man come after me, can you link Matthew 11 then to this text? If any man has come after me for rest, right? You are to take his yoke upon you and learn of him. Listen to what he says. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is not optional. In no way is this optional. This is a fundamental doctrine of the disciple to follow Christ in this way. Now, it's very interesting. I always find this interesting um, just as an exercise is where our focus often is on a verse, right? Um, because we often neglect the thing that is of first importance and often focus on the things that are of secondary importance, as important as they might be. What I find is often many of us, and I've been as guilty of it as you, often focus, right, and fixate here on these two things, self-denial and taking up your cross. You shrink away from the text, right, and you start to lose heart. But is that actually the focus of the text? Is that the focus of this chain? Or is the focus, the aim, really Jesus saying, come after me, follow me? And do you see there is a total difference in the way you perceive this text based on where you see the emphasis. Beloved, it is Christ who is meant to be central in this verse to you. That we actually focus so much on the self-denial part shows you how much self there is in us. But you are called to run the race what? The Bible's theme is so consistent here. You are called to run the race doing what? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Christ's framing of self-denial in our text can be understood this way. You deny yourself so that you might have a better object for your soul to view than you, which is Jesus. Boys and girls, You know, if you want this simply, the life of a disciple is defined simply in this. Follow Jesus and not yourself and nobody else. The Christian life in many ways, right? And we're going to get to how the Apostle Paul and Peter all spoke of the Christian life. It's a fixation and an obsession with the God-man. That's what the Christian life is. Now, the question might come and children, you might ask the question. 
how do we follow him today? You know, the, the man of Galilee, so to speak, is not here to follow him physically. Do we follow him physically? No. He gave us, he gave you a Bible. He gave you his word, his own words by which you follow the master. It's clear that the Bible is actually in view here. Look at verse 26. We read, Whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed. You see, the idea is you must follow Jesus through his word. We're going to get to shame. Sad to say, one of the greatest um, impediments to following Christ and his Bible is that we're often ashamed of what it has to say, and we shy away from it. But his will is expressed in this book, and this is what we follow as we follow him. He is the incarnated word. How does John's gospel begin, boys and girls? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Christ is the incarnate word of God. And what does he say in other places? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. See, it's a very consistent message, isn't it? In Revelation 14, 4b, the souls before the, the, the throne are known by this, even in glory, right? This is what defines the souls glorified. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Wherever he goes, the Christian goes. You know, if you think about the contrast, right? If before we were converted, what were we known by? We were all as sheep gone astray. When Christ meets us and he turns our hearts of stone to a heart of flesh, we must be known as those who follow the lamb wheresoever he goes. What is the 23rd Psalm, right? We'll sing it after the sermon. The Lord is my shepherd. And what are we defined as? He leadeth me. As obedient little lambs, then, we follow the master over our own sin-loving self, and we do it through the word of God. But self is what Jesus says comes in the way of Christ all too often. And you know this yourself, don't you? How often has yourself stood between you and the master's will? How often, beloved? So you might ask the question, right? If we are meant not to fixate on ourselves in this verse, we might ask, what is the best way to follow Jesus then? Well, what it is to see, right, Jesus as utterly glorious, utterly precious, utterly worthy of being followed, my Lord and my Savior. You are to adore Christ. You are to fall in love with who he is and what he is to you. You ask the question again of the 113th Psalm, who is like unto my Jesus? And as you find he grows in your heart, and in your affections, when you see his kingship, right, is also meant to be a kingship over your own heart, not just over the nations, then you start to follow him. And when your soul makes him its primary pursuit, right, when he becomes the apple of your eye, then you follow Christ. And if I can put it this way, because it's not natural, it's a supernatural thing, but let me just for the point of... An idiom, it becomes natural to you to follow Jesus. How did the Apostle Paul deal with the loss that would come in serving Christ? Philippians 3, 7 through 8. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. 
right? So, so what's behind this? That to follow Christ meant that Paul was going to have to lose everything. What did he say? Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of how many things? All things, and do count them but what? Dung, that I may what? Win Christ. Philippians 3, 7, and 8. Notice, and this is important for us, what did the apostle not say? He didn't say, I lose all that I may win eternal life. He said, I lose all that I may win Christ. That's something far better. We are willing to lose even our life to win, to have Jesus Christ. But we will only do it if the knowledge of Christ is the most excellent thing of all to us. What did Peter say? Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is what? Precious. 1 Peter 2.7. Friends, this is really the root principle of discipleship. You see Jesus as your king, but you also see him as he who is most precious. And that is what will lead you to love Christ, to, uh, to know him more, and be willing to suffer the loss of all things for his sake. Right? This isn't this what captivated Polycarp at his martyrdom when he said that his Lord had never done him wrong for 80 years. How could he deny him? He knew whom he believed in. And really what you and I must do, right, saved by the grace of the blood of the Lamb, is that we must revel and glory in the truth that we, of all people, are chosen by God to follow Jesus. That's a tremendous privilege. And we must ask ourselves, is that really then a sacrifice? Is it really a sacrifice to follow Jesus? Or is it really gain? It is absolute gain to win Christ, which is what Paul said. Whatever the earthly cost, right? We say we give it all up that we may win and have Jesus Christ. And so the pursuit of the disciple is a pursuit of the person of Christ. Now, as we consider the word of God, let's consider all of his ordinances, those great means of grace that we talk of, right? The word, sacrament, prayer. You need to frame them in sight of Christ, that they are a pursuit of him, right? The word of God is called the word of Christ, Christ who speaks to us through the word. What is the Lord's Supper? It is Christ, Christ that we commune with, who communicates to us. Prayer is made in the name of Christ. He, our high priest, presents them to God. If you have a lofty view of Christ, you will have a lofty view of his ordinances. And you will follow him through them and by them. That this is the way of the person of the word of prayer and worship is a pursuit of Jesus Christ himself. Even our good works, right? As we think on good works in the Christian's life, they must be seen as a pursuit of Christ as well. A following of him. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship created in who? Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Right? Even that walking picture of following Jesus. Right? Good works prepared for us. The Lord has made, the Lord Jesus has made 
for us good works to do, to walk in them and walk after them, after him. And you know this. Good works require the denial of self, don't they? And we're going to get to that as our third heading. They require the denial of our time uh, for ourselves. They require the denial of our resources, uh, the denial of our prayers being uh, spent on ourselves exclusively, and so on and so forth. Right? We must have a broader view of the kingdom in order to do good works. And so self-denial is framed by a soul captivated by Jesus. All of its faculties heart, mind, strength, captivated by Christ, being irresistibly drawn to him. You know, boys and girls, you might have studied these things in in maybe um, uh, Greek history, right? The Greek mythologies. You had the sirens of Greek mythology that would draw sailors, right? Their irresistible call to them. But they were grotesque creatures, though they sounded beautiful, right, by their voice, and they drew men to their doom. But when the word of Christ comes, it's the opposite, We are irresistibly drawn to the most glorious person called the chief of 10,000 and to everlasting life and not damnation in his eternal abode. And so as Christ speaks, we are drawn to him. And beloved, not to belabor the point, but to drive it a bit further, which is that the greater Christ is to you, the bridge between him and self-denial becomes very short. And it becomes very easy to walk. Of course, I will leap over this chasm to come and follow my Savior as a lamb skipping on the hills. Your heart would join the apostle in saying, right? I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. How does that verse make any sense at all? If you have elevated yourself over Christ or anything else over Christ, if Christ himself is not It is not the chief thing to you. It makes absolutely zero sense. And it's the only way you are going to understand what Jesus said in Luke 14, 26. If any man come to me, so this is the same theme, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, here's the gate. He cannot be my disciple. That's what the apostle said, that in comparison to Christ, even those that I love the most should be counted as dung compared to the love that I have of Christ. And of course, we don't treat them that way, but compared to Christ, everything else seems like rubbish and it makes it so easy to follow him. Otherwise, we cannot be his disciple. And John the Baptist, I think, perhaps summarized this all very well. He said that he, that is Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. That really sums up the entirety of the Christian life. You can make it that simple, right? There it is, friends, right? He said, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And here he says, worthy is the Lamb to have the preeminence over all things. He must increase that I must decrease. So you have heard from the Apostle Paul. You have heard from the prophet John. What of you? Where are you? Are you there saying he must increase that I must decrease? That all things are as rubbish compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Don't leave this place without saying these things are true in your heart.
I count all things but dung that I may win Christ. Keep him in the forefront of your affections. Remind yourself of the question of the 113th Psalm, who is like unto the Lord our God, our Lord Jesus, and say that I, his disciple, must cheerfully and gratefully, out of love and adoration and awe, follow him. And so that readies us then for our second heading as we work our way backward, which is to die daily. Now we return to the means by which we follow Jesus, and it requires the killing of the greatest impediment that there is to following Jesus. Now, you might ask yourself the question, and maybe you've thought on this wrongly, as so many do. What is the greatest impediment to following Jesus? Is it the devil? Is it the Democrats? No. It is your own difficult self, and mine too. You and I are our own greatest enemies. We really are. So he says that the means to following him is this, take up your cross. Now, as you probably know, I don't think this comes as a shock to anyone here, the cross is an instrument of execution, isn't it? The means by which the Romans put criminals to death and condemned men, and this is what Jesus is alluding to, condemned men were made to carry their own crosses on which they were going to suffer and die. That's what Jesus alludes to here. And as a bit of an aside, just exegetically the flow here, you know, he had just said that he would suffer and die before being raised on the third day in verse 22. So this may well be his first allusion to the death that he would die on the Roman cross himself. But remember, your master knows what he is doing. We'll get to that later in the chapter in another sermon. That aside, we... We, his disciples, he is telling us something very plainly. We will suffer to follow him. This is so contrary, isn't it, to what you often hear in the church today, which is follow Jesus and suddenly your life will become easy and breezy. But he's actually saying to follow Jesus actually becomes hard. It becomes hard. Uh, We are to be willing sufferers for Jesus' sake in self-denial to follow him, even unto death which he alludes to in verse 24, even martyrdom. But bearing our cross actually has many dimensions. So I want to consider a few of those with you this morning. Foremost, this instrument of our own death is for the sake that we would not serve sin, but we would serve our Savior. Romans 6.6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. We are called to put to death sin and not serve it. But where does the power come? I think it's so important to understand that in Romans 6. The power comes from Christ's own cross. Crucified with him, our union with him. We are united to both his death, which becomes our death, and his life, which becomes our life. Galatians 5.24, and they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. So here is taking up our cross, isn't it? It's a crucifying of our flesh with our affections and lusts for the flesh. Our affections and lusts for sin must be put to death. A disciple is certainly not less than this. Wherever then you have affections for sin and for lust, 
You must plead with Christ. Crucify it. Put it to death, Lord. But you say, I have to have affections and longings still. So what will you replace your affections with, right? You can't just rip out affections and lust for sin without replacing them with something else. What will you do it with? We'll replace it with Christ, of course, and a love of righteousness. Consider Paul's biographical note in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, right? There's that same theme. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am crucified with Christ. You see that? I am dead. I am to be accounted dead to sin. Right? Rom, with his sinful inclinations, is to be dead. The apostle says, yet I live. But it's not really me, is it? It's not really me anymore. That signifies my death to my own self. The same theme in Luke 9. But the life that I now live is all about Christ. And it's not a Christ out there, right? on the road there or in heaven above, but a Christ in here, a Christ in the heart that liveth in me by his spirit. I am united to Christ and my life now lived is alive to God, but dead to sin, crucifying my old man by the spirit's power, setting my affections where my life is now hid. What does the Bible say, boys and girls? Where is your life hid? In Christ, God And my life now is defined by faith in the Son of God. And really the question the Apostle asks in Galatians 2.20 is really why not? Did he not love me? Did he not give up his own life for me? How is it that I can't crucify my sinful passions when the Son of God was crucified and made sin on a cross that I might be made the righteousness of God in him? I live my life now crucifying the flesh Because the Son of God loved me and crucified Himself to save me. And this is the motive force for the the Apostle. And you ask yourself the question, this disciples, will you ever bear a cross as horrible or as awful as the one that He bore for you? I, I must say my cross is easy to bear. Why? Because first and foremost, He helps me to bear it Himself. In union with himself. There are other dimensions to the cross. Sufferings in this life are part and parcel of the cross. Persecution for Christ's sake is plainly in view in verse 24. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Even your sense of self-preservation must be put to death. If losing your life for Christ's sake is called for, you must deny yourself rather than deny him. This is an aspect of cross-bearing. You are tempted to deny Jesus in many ways. But he warns you, if you don't deny yourself to follow him, even if it calls for your death, you will lose your life. If you deny Jesus in order to save yourself, in order to not deny yourself. And uh, that's a theme that we will dwell on more as the gospel unfolds. So we'll leave that there. And maybe in another time, 
you might uh, have romantic views of this kind of thing. But let me just say this. If you're not willing to give up lesser things for Christ, don't be surprised if you find when the gun barrel is pointed at your head, you're not willing to give up your own life for Christ. Right? What is it you're unwilling to give up now? Don't assume and presume that if you aren't willing to give up anything else for Christ, you're not going to give up your life. That goes for all kinds of things, not just martyrdom. You know, in this evil day, you will be asked to deny his words, right, about homosexuality, transgenderism, fornication, creation, hell, his exclusivity, and so on. Why? Is it because you do not believe that his word is sure and true? Or is it because you are afraid that you are going to lose something in this world? But what did he say? You should not hesitate to lose even husband, wife, friends, family, or your own life for the sake of not denying him. You know, beloved, in this life, and it's become, you know, we've, we've lived a life of ease so much in this nation as Christians, but things are turning. And it might well be the case that for the sake of believing and following the word of God, you will not be able to get a, a certain kind of job. Or maybe you will lose it. Or maybe you'll lose a relationship, a man or a woman pressuring you to sin with them. Maybe you will be thought of as an idiot in the academy because you believe in a literal creation and a literal hell. Whatever you think you will gain by denying the word of God, he says, beware in verse 25, for what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? In the scales, put that verse and have it overshadow anything that you are tempted to gain for the sake of denying Christ. Better put your own desires to death, friend, than to lose yourself and be cast away. And on that, bearing your cross has another dimension you best get used to, which is shame. That was the aim of the cross by the Romans anyhow which is to embarrass and shame the one who is crucified. Jesus, you know, you think of this, right? You, you thrust the one who is, it's not even like our old hangings, right? Which were relatively quick and easy. But the aim and design was to put one on the cross and have them hang there for so long that men would gawk and laugh and scorn and shame them making them a spectacle to embarrass them. Jesus himself, right? Why do we often at communion time meditate on the idea that he was put on that middle cross? It's because he was put in between two criminals to be mocked and shamed. Consider how the scripture speaks of his crucifixion. I already cited part of it. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what? Endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, Hebrews 12, 2. Do you hear that? Despising the shame. Despising the shame of the cross. Christians, this is a portion of cross-bearing you had best get used to bearing in this world, which is shame. Right? You are going to be tempted to be ashamed of the things that Christ tells you to do, and tells you to believe. 
You're going to be in the midst of polite society, so to speak, and just to say the things that you are to believe according to the Word of God is to cause you to maybe shrink away or maybe not even reveal that you are a Christian. But this is an aspect of cross-bearing, is to not be ashamed. And here comes the thought of one who wants to win Christ. Oh, my soul, my Savior was so greatly shamed for me. How can I not endure lesser shame for him? Christ alludes to the shame of being his disciple in verse 26. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. How often have you been embarrassed of the word of God? How often have you not plainly held to what you believe because of shame? It happens to so many of us, right? We are often ashamed of what the word of God has to say. You know, today, especially, there are elements in our society that shame us for just the very plain, perspicuous words of God, whether on human sexuality, on the doctrine of hell, the exclusivity of Christ. How many times have you been ashamed to even say that those who don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are going to hell? One of the great impediments to evangelism is this kind of thing, of course. One of the great impediments to Christians being open about their faith is shame. But also in many churches which have moved away from the Bible, it's because they were first ashamed of what the Word of God had to say. And then they move away from it. Oh, well, it's kind of an embarrassing thing in the eyes of the world if we say a woman cannot be a pastor. What is the world going to think? So we put that away. It's going to be an embarrassing thing if we preach that all are going to hell if they don't put their faith in the Savior. We'll put that away. On and on it goes until there's nothing left. And you find yourself, you yourself, in hell on that last day. The place you were embarrassed of. Do you know that one of the great impediments even to doctrines like Sabbath-keeping Right? Or our worship practices are not exegetical, but embarrassment. Do you know it's the why, the main reason that solid denominations have gotten rid of them? It was never about exegesis, right? But it was always about res- respectability in the broader church or the world. But if we are convinced of the truth of Scripture, we are not to be ashamed of what He teaches us. We must be great. You know, when it comes to brethren, right? We are gracious and kind even to our enemies. We love our enemies. But never must we be embarrassed. Boys and girls, this is going to be more pressing on you unless the Lord mightily pours out revival in our time. Not only the world, but much of the church will be embarrassed by what you believe. Get used to it. Don't give up on what you believe Scripture to teach on any matter because you are embarrassed. Christ will not honor that. He says, Whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be what? Ashamed. That's a terrible thing. Consider Jesus and what he has done for you before you are tempted to be ashamed. Hebrews 12, 
Verse 2 reminded us Jesus despised the shame of his cross. What was the use of it, though? You might remember this, these verses. They're so pivotal. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. In other words, what we do is we look at Jesus enduring and despising the shame, and we ourselves then are given a supernatural Holy Spirit strength when we look on Jesus to endure and persevere. He bore a cross for you, beloved. He was shamed in front of the entire world for you. Can you and I not be shamed on such a lesser way to pursue him? He says, don't be weary. Don't be faint. Don't be tempted to be ashamed. But run the race looking unto me. Despise the shame. And even, this is the part that we have to take. Embrace the shame. Embrace the shame. See, this is what we don't do. In fact, we have to embrace the shame. I was always thinking of how wonderful the, uh, the early disciples saw Christ and his pursuit. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer what? Shame for his name. See, they didn't just despise the shame. They embraced the shame. Right? That's something that we are not prone to do. Acts 5 verse 41. We are to embrace the shame of our cross as Jesus and his disciples did. Much more could be said, I think. Now, it's vital that you also understand the frequency of Christ's command. How often does he say to, to take up your cross and to embrace it? Daily. Daily. There is never a vacation for discipleship. The disciple's life is a constant cross-bearing. Every day you are called on to die to self more and more. Every day you seek to be more sanctified. You seek to, to put to death sin and live more for righteousness. Not just the Lord's day, every day. And so in your devotional exercises, you must make a portion of them this, this pleading with the Lord for the grace of God to put to death sin. To identify sin and ask him to put it to death. Bring particular sins to the Lord. Bring your particular temptations, besetting sins to the Lord. Ask him to crucify those lusts that you enjoy that are contrary to Christ's own desire. You think of how extensive this cross-bearing is. What did Jesus say when it came to the mortification or putting to death of our sin? He said, even if your right hand or your eye causes you to sin, put them away, right? This is the great self-denial. He says it would be better for you to lose those, those, those uh, limbs or those instruments of your body than to be cast into hell. Cross-bearing is a daily thing. And I was thinking about this, right? I was thinking about the Jews, how they cried against Jesus, crucify him. If only we had the same vigor to cry, crucify my sin. Crucify it, Lord. Crucify it. Crucify it. With that kind of vehemence, right? That's what we need. We need that vehemence, that holy zeal to put to death myself and my sin. More than the Jews had to crucify our Savior. If we could only have that kind of zeal for the Lord. So with that understanding, we go backwards to the head of the chain that leads to following Jesus and we consider that as our last heading, deny self. 
And so, verse 23, the beginning again, if any man will come after me, what? Let him deny himself. Now you understand the object of pursuit, which is Jesus. You understand the instrument and the means of pursuit, death to self. And so when you hear now, let him deny himself, we know why we do it and we know how. But this kind of denial of self must not be misunderstood. You know, I I heard that... um, in the Philippines, that there are men who are literally crucifying themselves today, or not today, a couple days ago. But that is not what the Lord has in mind here, right? It's not a kind of popish, monastic self-denial. It does not mean necessarily that you must deny yourself all the good things of this life. It does not mean denying yourself happiness. And anyway, your joy is in the Lord, so you'll be happy anyway. But What it means is, and it's simply this, boys and girls, children, deny yourself everything that would require you to deny him. Right? Very simple. Deny everything that would cause you to deny your Savior. Both lawful and unlawful things are included in that. The world is going to tell you, as I mentioned in our opening to the sermon, boys and girls, the world is going to teach you that something like this. You deserve to be happy. You deserve to be happy. That is a lie straight from the devil himself, as you heard it in the Garden of Eden. That was essentially his first lie, right, to Eve. You deserve this. You deserve it. And it is God who is keeping you from having it. This is the oldest play in the book. And you will never find this idea in the mind of God that you, you deserve anything, first of all much less being happy. And this is really, it's going to be, children, the trump card used by the world to prey on your sinful flesh, to overrule whatsoever they hate that God has to say in the Bible. That's seen with all the ungodliness around us today, right? We hear what? People deserve to be happy. Who are you to deny them happiness? What are you going to do, though, boys and girls, when someone encourages you to sin in that way? When they say you deserve to be happy, you can simply say what? Get thee behind me, Satan. Right? That is the devil's worn out playbook. Uh, Sad thing is it's so well worn because it works so well. Isn't it? That's why he gets so much mileage out of it. Here's the thing, right? You need to know this, children especially, but all of us. You will not find happiness anyway. Not if that is your pursuit is to go against what Christ says for the sake of some perceived happiness. What did Adam and Eve find out after they ate of that fruit? They thought they would have so much happiness, didn't they? What did they find? Thorns, thistles, sweat, pain. No more Eden. This is what Moses knew. What did he say? He knew, is Hebrews 11, of course. What did uh, it reveal Moses knew? That the pleasure of sin is for a short season. Right? But he esteemed, now come back to this theme of suffering for Christ. He esteemed the reproach of Christ. What is that? If you want to basically put it in maybe a more common vernacular today, it's the shame. It's the shame of Christ. The shame of following Christ. He esteemed the shame of following Christ of greater blessing to him than having the pleasure of sin for a short season. And really, 
as we think on following the Savior, where does all this shame, where does all this self-denial lead to? Right? You think of the path of life. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures, what? For a short season? Forevermore. Right? That's what Moses knew that we often don't. Instead of the satanic idea of deserving to be happy, and where does that lead you? Into the lake of fire. You are commanded to be holy. And that often comes with great self-denial, but it leaves you to a mansion in your father's house with Christ. To deny yourself for Christ leads to a greater joy than fleeting happiness. And I think if you've been a Christian, probably for longer than a single solitary day, you know this by experience. Sin's pleasures, you think of it, how often you've been tempted by, by having in your mind the pleasure of this sin And then you have it for a short season and then pain and misery, a distance from your Savior and your God. You know it. So why pursue it? Is it not better to deny yourself, to take up your cross daily and follow after Christ? What this means as well is to follow Christ, it doesn't come easy It doesn't even seem joyful in the present. Even when our Savior, right, denied himself, he groaned when he pleaded, not my will but thy be done, right? But it's worth it to follow God. He denied himself for God, right? Jesus did. But he also denied himself for you and for me. And so you need to pray when you need to deny yourself for the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Christ. And he will sympathize, won't he? And he will help you deny yourself. Because there is nothing your Savior has done to deny himself that he is calling you to do greater than what he has done. And he sympathizes as you deny yourself to follow him. He smiles on you and he blesses you in that I know time is short, but I want to, before I go, put briefly to your mind seven areas of self-denial. And we'll breeze over them. This is where, again, I said, you know, a better man could preach easily 12 sermons on this. The first is to deny your love of your earthly life. Martyrdom and persecution was foremost on the Lord's mind when he said this. Verse 24, Whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, right? It's, it's martyrdom that's in view. The same shall save it. And you think of this, who he's addressing, right? Those first 12, most of them were going to die as martyrs. But these are the blessed ones of Revelation twelve eleven, And you need to think on this yourself, Christian. And I hope that this is a glorious thing to you and you could say it of yourself in Revelation 12:11 for they love not their lives unto the death why because they loved Jesus more than they loved their own lives lose your life for my sake the savior said and i will save it and not too long ago right i might have only preached this as we prayed about foreign missions you might only have heard this preached if you're going to the mission field or something like that But now this is a pressing reality in our time, sad to say. You remember recently, not very long ago, that transgender woman targeted Christians to murder them. 
And churches you're seeing more and more are being targeted even in our land in recent years. And so you have to come to grips with it now. And boys and girls, you need to think on this especially. What am I going to do if the gun is pointed to my head? And I am told, you can live. You just have to deny Christ. Or you just have to say this one thing. And then I will let you live, right? You can almost imagine some, some who are so crazied by their sin coming up to maybe somebody, some Christian, putting them on a live stream and saying, all you have to say is God will, will accept my sin and God accepts me and I don't need to repent and turn to Jesus. That's all you have to say. You don't have to deny Jesus for yourself. And the question is, will you deny him by that action yourself? Or will you say, whatever you do to me, I am not going to be ashamed of the words of God. You have to be ready. Be prepared to not lose your love your own life even unto death, and you will live forever. Second, you must deny your lusts. Titus two, eleven through fourteen. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts see that? Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And look at the motivation again. If you don't believe me, if you think this has all been rhetoric, this is the Bible itself telling you this. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Why do you deny ungodliness and your lusts? You look to he who gave himself for us. It's that same theme, that he might make us a peculiar people zealous of good works. He gave himself out of love for you, to save you to the uttermost, but also to purify you, that you would live soberly, righteously, and godly in this evil world. You need to deny yourself everything ungodly that draws you away from Christ. Third, deny your desire for this world and the things of this world. Not too long ago, maybe it was, but it doesn't seem that way. You remember the sad case of Demas. Once a great laborer for the Lord, but at the end, as Paul was ready to be executed for Christ, we read, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved what? This present world. 2 Timothy 4.10. Many will be proven to love this world more than Christ, and he will test you and he will test me to show us where our heart is. He tested Paul as he was about to be executed, but Paul loved his life not unto the death. He tested Demas. Demas was found wanting. He saved his life only to lose it in hell. Here on the Lord's day, the Lord tests your heart. Is it the joy of Christ and eternity in your heart or is it the world that is in your heart? Friends, Jesus said, remember Lot's wife, remember her end and her worldliness. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Fourth, deny yourself in your use of time. Let me just ask this question. Do you really need to watch more television or more social media? Or do you really need this more time at Christ's feet? What is it you really need? Do you need more time in the word? Do you need more time in prayer? Or do you even need time in fasting, which is that great spiritual exercise of what? Self-denial, right? Listen to Romans 13, 11 through 14, and the urgency 
that this has for the believer, not the unbeliever, the believer, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But what? Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Make no time for the flesh. Make all the time to put on Jesus. See, again, Christ is always at the center, isn't it, of all of these texts. You need to redeem the time because the days are evil. Deny yourself in your use of time. Fifth, deny your own use of of your wealth, right, or even potential wealth. You know, following Jesus often comes at a sacrifice of your wealth, right? He said, no man can serve two masters, and he had in view mammon and God, right? And so sometimes to follow Christ will mean giving up on maybe a great material increase. Or maybe you find that your heart is moved to give to some cause as the Macedonians were. right? And it will mean making your bank account not as robust perhaps in your eyes as you might hope it to be. Or maybe you will not get anymore that career you had once hoped because, well, in order to take that particular job, I will not have a church to worship God. right? It, to follow Jesus in so many ways may require you to give up the things of this world. Recently, as I have been uh, more meditating on covenanter history, this is sort of like the remarkable theme that you find that as the Church of Scotland in so many ways were were at many points causing men to deny their conscience. Men, ministers left manses, they left stipends, they didn't join the Church of Scotland at the Revolution Settlement. Afterwards, the, the seceders, like the Erskines, they left manses and stipends in the established church. The, the disruption in 1843, 400 ministers left all to follow Christ because they asserted the spiritual uh, independence of the church. In many ways, you will have to deny your wealth for Christ. Sixth, you will have to deny yourself uh, by not thinking about yourself so much, but thinking on others. Philippians 2.4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Right? We are not a self-centered people. Our thoughts rise to Christ and to his body. Given our fallen nature is incredibly self-centered, this requires the grace of God. But I'm often astonished how often the need will go on Slack, right, or email, and how quickly so many of you respond. That's such an encouragement. That is the work of Christ's grace, whether it seems like a simple thing, right? One day a brother, uh, like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, says, I need a ride to go to church because I'm stuck at the airport. And suddenly in the morning, first thing somebody says, I'll take him. Or, or showing hospitality or simply going to be and grieve with somebody who mourns, Right? These all require us to put aside how many times have we had to put aside what my plans were for the day in order to go tend to somebody else. That's self-denial. We need to grow in that. Seventh, and lastly, we need to deny our own liberties at times. And that flows out of the last point, that we must be willing to deny our own Christian liberty for the sake of others. 
for their salvation or a greater growth in grace. Romans 14, let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And can't dwell on this long, but this is not about changing religious ordinances, right? Uh, But if one of you has a conscience issue concerning wine, uh, I'm not going to open a bottle of wine for dinner if it causes you to stumble. That's a willingness to give up my liberty for the sake of what? Follow after the things. And this is the criteria, right? And I think if we would focus on what it accomplishes rather than what we give up, which again is sort of why we're so backwards and why the Lord has to correct us. What does it accomplish according to Romans 14? The things that make for peace and edification. That's the aim. And you ask yourself, what is peace among brethren worth? What is the peace of Psalm 133 worth, right? Brothers dwelling in unity. And you ask, is the demolishing of Christ's body worth my liberty? And so I deny myself for the sake of following Christ. There are more than these seven areas we can speak on, but they're challenging enough and our time is gone. And the question then I'll just leave you with is this. What are you unwilling to give up for the sake of following Christ? What is it even in your own experience the Lord has very plainly said in his word, you, my son, you, my daughter, must give this up to follow me. And you have said, no, Lord, and you have turned away. Those are things that we must repent of and we must turn back to the Lord. Resolve now to say, I will cheerfully from the heart follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth, even to my own death, being faithful to him even to death. And if you have denied the Lord in any way, may you this day remember Peter. He denied his Lord three times. But all it took, and maybe this is Jesus today doing this to you, is Jesus looking at you, looking at you. And what does he do? He weeps bitterly when he is convicted of his sin and his, his, his denial of Jesus. He turns back to follow the Lord. And you know that on that boat, when Jesus appears, he jumps headlong into the water. He follows him. He wept, but he followed Christ such that later on, as we have already read, Peter could say, he is precious. If you have seen Christ's preciousness as he looks on you, repent of not following him. He is very gracious. Return unto the shepherd and bishop of your soul. And as a little lamb, follow him. He forgives. And glory to God, he even, in a manner, forgets saying, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. This is a Christ of mercy that you are called to follow. Hallelujah and praise God for that. And you ask yourself then, how could we not follow him? How could we not follow him wherever he leads? So he says to you all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and Follow me. Amen.